0: Side. Spend the day side. From 6 a.m. to 9:30 p.m. on Radio Side Thursday Live. Radio Side Thursday Live. Stay tuned.
1: Welcome, dear listeners, to this week's afternoon satsang. As always, this is Prem from Team Radio Side, and with me is Arvind. We are about to start this week's foray into the story of the Ramayana as penned by our dear Swami. As always, we begin by offering our most loving pranams at Swami's lotus feet and beginning by listening to the beautiful rendition of the Shloka Shri Rama Rama Rameti which speaks of the glory of the Ramanama.
0: Sri Rāma Rāma Rāmehi Rame Rame
2: Sirem, dear listeners, we are reaching the Fag end of the Ramayana almost, the Ramayana story that we traditionally know as the story of how the incarnation of God, Lord Sri Rama, and highlights the incarnation of evil, Ravana. So in that story we have reached nearly the end because, you know, if the position that we are in today, the place we are in today, the place of the story that we are in today, if it were to be con- uh, compared to a cricket match, um, I would say that it's almost like Rama's team needs a few runs to win with about 20-30 overs still remaining to be bowled. If it were a soccer match, I would say that the situation is something like Rama's side is leading with 5 goals to none and uh, just few minutes of play left. So, it is in a situation where the victory of Rama's forces are almost inevitable and everyone seems to know that, you know, they have won. Except, except for Ravana because it's almost like his personal pride is at stake and because of which he has refused to see the inevitable. It's almost like that because when you, when we read through Swami's writing, we get the feeling that somewhere deep within even Ravana knows that it's a hopeless war that he's trying to fight and win. Possibly he knew it even in the beginning. But his own ego, his own succumbing to his vices, makes him blind to this. Which serves as an important lesson to all of us because it shows clearly what happens when we succumb to our vices. We start getting attracted towards them and move away from the virtues. In the war, we discussed last week how Kumbhakarna, the mighty Kumbhakarna is killed. The fall of Kumbhakarna shakes up all the forces of Ravana because everyone thought that Kumbhakarna was someone who can never be defeated. And if Kumbhakarna has been defeated, what is the guarantee that Ravana can't be defeated? That's the kind of idea. But it doesn't stop with Kumbhakarna alone. Ravana's valiant and very skillful son a person who is compared to the gods in his ability and skill of fighting and is sometimes said that he is more skillful than Ravana himself that is Indrajit Indrajit is also killed at Nikumbala Park we saw how the yagna that he is doing is disrupted by Lakshmana, Hanuman, Vibhishna and the others and then Lakshmana kills Indrajit and for the first time Ravana seems to be facing a very very personal loss. See because once a person fathers a child it's like the family shifts you know. Till till you don't have a child the family is more like you, your siblings and your parents. But somehow it happened that once you get a child it shifts and the immediate family becomes you, your wife and your children. So among the children also, Megnada is the eldest. It is often said that the father is most attached to the eldest child, especially if it happens to be a son. And so now Indrajit or Megnada is killed and so Ravana is personally hit in such a manner. In fact, Swami writes how Ravana and Mandodri themselves come to the uh, outermost gates of the Lankan kingdom to take the corpse or the body of their fallen son. And Ravana is crying and Swami writes that when Ravana weeps, even Rama's camp, you know, all the Vanaras, the bears, everyone who is fighting on Rama's side, they too are unable to withhold their tears. That is the amount of sorrow that is ringing Ravana's heart. So, this is what happens when we don't see the writing on the wall, when we don't realize that evil is futile, Voices are futile, it's turned to change. If that doesn't happen, you are bound to meet with sorrow and that is what has happened to Ravana. So, Ravana and the entire Rakshasa forces are grieving and at the end of that day's battle, even the forces of Rama, all the Vanaras and bears, they are also very tired and fatigued because this has been a long day, a day in which two great personalities have been killed and they have also received a lot of injuries and, you know, uh, uh, they have been hit by these two heroes. So, they are also tired while the Rakshasa forces are tired, demoralized and devastated.
1: Right. And uh, going by the story, this entire event of Meghnata uh, being vanquished, that duel between Meghnata and uh, Lakshmana happens in this park which is called the... Uh, Nikumbala Park where he is supposed to be doing a penance and uh, a small yajna in a sense and uh, Lakshmana goes and disrupts that and kills him. So this whole thing happens in the absence of Rama. So the first thing which they do is Lakshmana comes back and describes to Rama the entire event as it happened and Rama is extremely pleased as we said in many ways, in fact in many uh, versions of the Ramayana there, they speak of the killing of uh Megna that's the end of the war. You know the, <laughs> the the next part which comes, which is of course the killing of Ravana which comes later, is is almost like an inevitable uh, thing which had to happen almost like as you said, the last over which had to be bold, even though you know that it's, it's just mandatory <laughs> yeah, that's And you just go through the near formality. Yeah, formality. Because this he really was a person who was uh, you know was the final fortress they had to cross and as you are saying that, that attachment to Mahanada was not only because it was a son not only because it was an elder son because it was a person who was who had all the capacity to you know carry forward that legacy because many times it will happen you know if you have a musician father if you have a artisan father there will be a, a certain amount of attachment to that son who takes to the art hmm. you know to whom you are able to pass on the art and Will probably live your life even after you are gone, you know, that sort of a thing. So Meganada was somebody like that, you know, he has already got the uh, name of defeating Indra, Indra and the other gods, much like his own uh, father. You know, he had that kind of a reputation, and to have lost him was a very, very big blow for Ravana. And even Rama recognized that it was such a important event in the battle. So he embraces Lakshmana and, you know, showers all his blessings on him. And then he turns to the other members of the uh, camp—Nala, Nila, Hanuman, Vibhishana—and each one he goes and embraces them, and he's saying that he's so very happy with the events of the day. And they find that, you know, that in that warm embrace of Rama, all of their fatigue and the weaknesses they've sustained, the injuries they've sustained, all of that, you know, just to, is healed in that moment of embrace. And uh, seeing that smile on Rama's face, even the fatigue of all the other vanara. Uh, warriors seems to have been lifted away you know that's the beauty and you know this part of the story when you talk I mean every time uh, the narrative is the same of Ravana not giving up and all through our training as children as young adults or whatever we've always been told that determination is a virtue right we've always told that that never give up attitude is a virtue Mm. but the same never give up attitude seems to be like the stupidest thing to do in the case of Ravana here Hmm. When you look at it, you know, some of these things like determination or uh, being, uh, you know, that uh, stubbornness or that ability to hold on even when there is defeat, all these seem to be tools, you know. These are all human qualities which can be, as be- at best tools. But when coupled with goodness or badness, they totally take a different uh, shade. Here we talk of Ravana uh, as stubbornness. But, you know, Swami would often speak of pattudala or determination, which is very important. You know, never give up what you've uh, laid your uh, desire upon and whatever happens, you have to hold on to it. So, when, you know, when there is goodness attached to that determination, it becomes a virtue. When that, when there is a certain uh, amount of an evil attitude, immorality in this case of Ravana is attached to determination, it seems like stubbornness, it seems like a stupid thing to hold on to it and not only ruin yourself but take your entire clan to ruin along with you and that's what's happened here Uh,
2: in fact uh, these are precisely the words of advice that uh, Ahiravana another son of Ravana gives to Ravana and uh, we shall come to that a little later there are some more uh, things that I would like to add to what you have just now said but I think I'll keep it for uh, for the dialogue between Ahiravana and Ravana to come up but as you said, you know, in Rama's camp, everyone is rejuvenated and refreshed. It must have been a very demoralizing sight, if at all, Ravana could see this, because uh, your champions have done their best and inflicted possibly whatever is the heaviest loss for loss for the opposition. And with a mere touch, with a mere glance, with, a, with just an embrace, everybody is back, their wounds are healed and it's like there has been no damage at all to the camp. So, you know, it it reminded me of that uh, often quoted uh, saying, you know, that if wealth is lost, nothing is lost; if health is lost, something is lost; if character is lost, everything is lost. You know, when Rama was exiled, uh, he had to give up his entire kingdom. The way Rama leads his life, the way we have seen the whole Ramayana, it doesn't look, it doesn't appear like Rama lost anything. It's more like Ayodhya lost a lot by losing Rama and here now you know when they have been injured and severely demoralized in the war it can be considered like them losing out on their health because that's what has happened Uh, physically and mentally they have been injured and hit if health is lost something is lost because they are down only for a while they are back with God's grace but in Ravana's case when character is lost everything is lost At the beginning of the war, it seemed like Ravana had everything but a flaw in the character. Except for that flaw in character, he had everything. And we are seeing how that one little flaw in character has become like a leaking point in a dam where it's only a matter of time before it's going to run dry and there's going to be nothing left. That is what is happening to Ravana. And this is what Sulochana, the wife of Indrajit, that is Ravana's own daughter-in-law, tells her father-in-law because you know she first goes to her father-in-law and Ravana feels that it is his duty to console his daughter-in-law but when he consoles her this arrogance of Ravana this uh, you know heading towards disaster attitude is clearly seen because he tells her that you know I never thought that Indrajit was such a flimsy fighter that a few monkeys could get into Nikumbala Park and destroy him the same ravana who felt that indrajit is going to be his future and who is going to carry his legacy forward is now uh, almost seeming ashamed of his son you know actually we see he's not ashamed of his son he's trying to hide his own shame by blaming that shame onto his son this is what he tells his daughter in law that you know i never thought that indrajit was such a flimsy fighter but but you don't worry because ravana is not like that i will go and avenge his death that is when I think, you know, Sulojana, who has got nothing to lose now, because all that she felt she could lose, she has already lost. And when you come across a person who has got nothing to lose, be sure that what you will receive will be the truth, however uh, painful it might be, because the person has got nothing to lose. That's exactly what Ravana gets from Sulochana, whether he likes it or not.
1: Right. And, you know, uh, in two ways, one thing is, because course, as, as you said, He's trying to hide his shame and put it on, uh, you know, his son. The other thing is, even now he's saying that this is a weak force, which I'm, uh, battling against. No, he's not acknowledging the fact that this enemy camp seems to be stronger than I thought. He's hmm. still saying that, oh my, I didn't realize my son was so weak. I mean, he's not saying that my son was so strong and he was beaten, so I, I, you know, I better watch out. He's saying, "Oh, I didn't realize my son was so weak. I all the while thought my son was very strong." Hmm. And as you said, Sulochana is absolutely—you uh, know—she loses her cool at this point, and she says, "See, all this while I kept quiet, thinking that one should not speak uh, rudely to elders." And she—I mean, as you said, now she has nothing to lose, and now she's really in that despondency. She starts abusing Ravana and says that all of this is because of you. You're going to bring your whole clan to—you uh, know—bring them to the dust. And then she goes to Mandudri and in that anger, she even, uh, you know, starts shouting at Mandodari. He said, "All this is because of your husband." And he says, and she says that the plight that I am going through today is going to be yours today or tomorrow. Meaning, meaning, that, meaning that you two will be right, a widow. You two are going to uh, cry the loss of your husband.
2: Oh, an important point that she makes to Ravana is that your anger is the cause for all this destruction. Your anger, you know, because at His son's death, of course, he is bereaved. He is in grief, but more than the grief, it is the anger. You know, I was reminded of that, those two uh, shlokas, number 62 and 63, in the second chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Mm -hmm. where uh, Krishna draws and explains the path of destruction that happens to anybody. He says it all starts with one's focus being on an object of desire. And Krishna says that, I am not remembering the Sanskrit shloka now, but Krishna starts by saying that when your focus is on an object of desire, it leads to attachment to that object of desire. And that attachment to that object of desire leads to you getting a desire to possess that object of desire. And if this desire gets thwarted completely or even in part, when that desire gets thwarted like that, it leads to anger. And then Anger leads to loss of memory or delusion. You know, it deludes you. It deludes you. It makes you uh, forget lessons of the past. It makes you forget things that you have learnt. That is what is referred to as loss of memory, delusion. It leads to delusion. Anger leads to delusion, which leads further to loss of discrimination. Because all said and done, discrimination in part depends on the Uh, ability to see through your past mistakes and see through uh, you know draw from that. So it leads to loss of discrimination and then Krishna concludes by saying loss of discrimination leads to complete destruction of the individual. So you can see Ravana has almost come (laughs) towards the end because he his focus because of his sister Shurpanaka was turned onto an object of desire, another woman another man's wife and which led to attachment to Sita, which led to desire for Sita, which led him to, you know, go and uh, kidnap her, get her to Lanka. But, you know, after doing everything possible, he still realizes that he is not able to achieve the object of his desire, which has led to anger, which has led to war, because of which It has led to Ravana getting deluded. As you rightly said, he is unable to see that the enemy forces is so strong. It is so obvious. Every soldier in the Ravana camp knows that defeat is certain, except for Ravana it seems. (laughs) Because it's not as if Ravana doesn't have knowledge. It's just that he has got deluded now. And with that delusion, it has led to loss of discrimination. So as we said, it's really the final over because after loss of discrimination comes the complete destruction of the individual. It's just a catastrophe waiting to happen for Ravana.
1: But, uh, you know, one one thought which strikes me is, when you are talking about Ravana, we are talking about this sequence happening to Ravana now, right? You know, he is gone after an object of desire. He has probably laid his hands on the wrong object, or the wrong person, you know, so to say. Hmm. And all of this has come after that. But it is not new thing for Ravana to go after women like this, or go after what he has desired and achieve it. Hmm. So I think as long as he could achieve it easily, probably he did not go down this road of, you know, doing these multiple mistakes. And I think all of that was in, uh, probably a chance for him to reconcile and say that, you know, I mean, at all of these stages, if you had removed the desire, you could have probably learned the lesson without going through this each process. And, uh, in many ways, see, when we, when we look at the situation from our point of view, let's say we desire something and we don't have the capacity to get it, I think that is when we learn the lesson faster. Those mm. who desire for something and probably have the money power or the, uh, you know, muscle power to get it, probably for a long time they're, they're just digging their grave and they don't, they don't get the opportunity to learn like how Ravana has not got it, got to learn it. Because mm. he's got this military might, he's got his power, because of which he has, got, he has had his way all through, and for, sudden, I mean suddenly he meets this uh, formidable enemy whom I mean he has never had an enemy like this before, probably, and you know the the fall is so sudden for him in that sense.
2: What you said, you know it, it is really a very deep truth which we don't seem to realize, because on the surface, it feels that you are successful if your desires are fulfilled. And you are a failure if your desires are not. I don't think it's a coincidence that in both the great epics of our time, the heroes are the one who apparently seem to lose everything. That is, whether it's Rama, or if we take Mahabharata, if we take the Pandavas, it's like that they are deprived of everything. And the villains, you know, the villains seem to be having everything. Yet, it shows that though Duryodhana seemed to have everything, though the Kauravas seemed to have everything, they actually had nothing. The same is the case with Ravana, because the peace of mind that Rama and Rama's camp enjoys, the comfort that they enjoy. Ravana may have golden beds, Rama, Ravana may have the greatest of palaces, but he doesn't have peace, he's not able to enjoy it, what is the use? At the same time, a rock is becoming a comfortable thing for the Vanara there, because he's on the side of Rama. These are really metaphors for our own life. And you know, I'm reminded of what Swami you should tell time and again nasukhat lab- labhyate sukham nasukhat labhyate sukham which means from hap- from uh, uh, sukha- the first sukhat i think can be translated as fulfillment of your desires what you think is going to give you happiness i think that getting this position getting this resource or getting this deal whatever these things are what going to make me happy that is what I think will make me happy. But Swami says, by actually achieving it, you will not get happiness. And that's what we see. That's why in our life, our goals keep changing every time a goal is achieved. It's not as if we set a, we, uh, set a goal, achieve it and say, that's it, my life is done. We have got a new goal. Because, nasukhat labyate sukham. At the same time, we have so many cases where a person who apparently fails to achieve his goal, learns so much, That what he achieves, what he or she achieves later in life is much grander, much more beautiful, much more deeper and much more stronger than the original goal itself.
1: I think this will happen if, you know, if we are able to observe our life. You know, as Swami would often say, I think uh, one of the thinkers writes, you take to any path, you know, you, you want to be a, you know, devotee, a bhakti marga, jnana marga, karma marga, whatever path you take, what is important for a spiritual aspirant is to able to, uh, you know, do what is called in Sanskrit vichara or you should be able to look analyze analyze, you know, what is happening in your life and if you look at it, you know if you look at the difference between animal and man, Swami would say the only difference is discrimination. Hmm. So if if you talk of being like an animal it is like you are in that mode of the brain where you are saying that, okay I want happiness I go, I fetch it, I satisfy myself the next time again I want happiness I again go and fetch it and I have it and this goes on in a cycle like this. But if you are going to look at it from the way of discrimination, you will you know, suddenly say that, yeah, I get the happiness, but that happiness does not last. So there is something missing here. Or I do something like this and I get some bliss, but it, is, it does not last. Or I, I end up having some kind of pain. This kind of analysis will happen if you at least, if not associate yourself with the Atma, you at least associate yourself with the Buddhi and look at your mind from that point of view i think that is what this entire that that beautiful shloka from the bhagavad gita which you said was nothing but that even if we are able to see ourselves going through that entire cycle once that will put us on guard we'll say that all right you know here comes a desire let me be on guard mm. you know it's not about not having desires at all one day we can't wake up and be desireless but at least you're on guard you know i, I always uh, think like this you know when you suddenly have this desire to buy a new mobile phone Probably we can't stop ourselves from going and buying, you know, we've already put our mind on some latest smartphone or whatever it is, but at least to have that in memory saying that I'm going to go and buy this mobile phone, but I know that by the end of one year, I'm going to lose interest in this phone.
2: One year, I think that's that's too long.
1: (laughs) Right, the, the period of interest is much, much shorter now, but at least even before you indulge in that desire remind yourself that this desire is not going to give you long-lasting happiness. At least that information to put it along with the desire, I think will, uh, you know, will, will make us understand and not let us go into that entire cycle that uh, you know, Krishna speaks about.
2: Probably you may buy an upgraded smartphone four times after which you say, right. it doesn't matter. I'll be fine. I'm happy with this. And in our personal life, we have seen Maybe ourselves, maybe others, going through this kind of a thing, a fascination for a whatever. We have taken the example of a smartphone, keep upgrading it three, four times after which you say, come on, there's, there's no end to it. You know, it's because it's no longer as exciting as it was when you bought your first smartphone. That is possibly the reason why we fondly remember our first bike, our first <laughs> car, right? our first because no. what importance we attach to that yeah. when it's the first Exactly, that's that's
1: not a desire, you know. The first time when you get something, especially let's say your first salary you buy something, or the first time you buy something for your mother or father and give, the first time you buy something for your child and give. It's more than a desire. You know, you're not fulfilling a desire. There is a meaning in fulfilling that desire. And I think that is what is missing when, when this desire cycle goes on. Like when you talk about Ravana, Sita is not the first woman he's gone after. You know, it's, it's like a, it's a habit for him to go after one another. So there is no... It's become way, an addiction. Right, it's become an addiction and when you talk of an addiction, that desire and fulfillment becomes a meaningless cycle. And I think that's where that emptiness comes in and, you know, you, for no reason you want to go after it you do, you can't stop yourself at the same time you can't uh, you know indulging it does not give you the happiness too
2: you know speaking of addiction discrimination animals animal all this you know i was reminded of a conversation that i was having just yesterday with a devotee and he was telling about some v- videos he saw on youtube mm-hmm. wherein in some of these sanctuaries in africa okay. especially the primates the monkeys and even elephants are known to attack Cars and vans, which are carrying alcohol. Mm. Okay. So, you know, man has gone to an extent of even getting animals addicted to them. We know that alcohol is addictive and addiction causing. And because of which these animals are on a lookout. And so, they are warned in those parks not to carry alcohol in their vehicles. Because if they carry alcohol in their vehicles, they make their vehicles a subject of attack. An object of attacks for the animals. So, you know, I was just thinking, uh, <laughs> the animal now, I feel it has got no choice. I think that elephant which has got addicted to liquor or that monkey which has got addicted to liquor, I don't think it has any hope in life. There
1: is no moral uh, standing there we think that
2: this is not good. Plus, plus, it doesn't have a discrimination to exactly. choose not to drink. I feel if we lose our discrimination, we are no different from baboons and monkeys because that's what has happened. And this, uh, because you know uh, we also if we indulge like that, there is no difference but the thing is, a human being has the ability to give up an addiction to alcohol that is because of the existence of a discrimination without discrimination no different from baboons and monkeys as I said and that irony you know, is brought out so beautifully in Ramayana because on one hand you have a human being a highly skilled, highly educated highly intelligent human being who seems to have lost discrimination and therefore is going down. And on the other side, you have monkeys who just because of following their Lord, irrespective of whether they have discrimination or not, are able to make all the perfect choices and elevate themselves to the level of God Himself.
1: Absolutely. I think the difference is clearly that a man with animal instincts and here is a God with an animal army, probably. And you know, going back to that same thing, what you were saying, all of this, all of these abilities... Probably to show aggression, probably to, uh, you know, be very valorous, be very obstinate. All of these are qualities which is there in each one of us and as we were talking all this while, that discrimination only can guide it to either be stubbornness or positive determination, can either be that never, uh, never die attitude or by saying that I will die with it, <laughs> I will not let it go attitude or whatever it is. It's just that discrimination which Decides
2: in which and, lane it goes, and, and this discrimination is heavily influenced, if not completely influenced, by morality. Right, it is. If if you are not moral, you will not have discrimination. Morality is a must. You know that is what actually we are coming to, because at this point in time, what happens is Sulochana has told this to Ravana. She goes and she's with sitting with Mandodari, and they both are discussing the glory of Rama and uh, Sita. <laughs> Sulochana and Mandodari, that is the wife of Ravana and wife of Indrajit. Nothing could have been more stabbing to Ravana's heart because the ones closest to you are now talking glories of your enemy. <laughs> That's what happened. And so Ravana is so demoralized that he goes and he starts you know, banging his head at the altar. He turns to God. See, that is what is amazing. Even a person like Ravana who is hating God, when everything goes against, finally he is also turning to God. And Ravana's uh, psychophants you know those who have been pumping him and pushing him uh, further and further to the edge they are now uh, shocked to see Ravana in such a demoralized condition so they go to encourage him in the meanwhile Ahiravana who is one of Ravana's sons who is ruling the Patala or the underground regions he comes to know of through his magical powers he comes to know of where Ravana is and what a condition he is in and that is when he comes to his father uh, Ravana Now, Ahiravana, what he tells, Ravana is the same thing. He tells that, see, morality is a very, very important thing and straying away from morality is the beginning of fear. That is what, I think, differentiates the two camps. It's the fearlessness of Ravana, uh, Rama's camp is because of strict adherence to morality. And the fear in Ravana's camp, in spite of having such heroes, is simply because they have been immoral. And Ahiravana says that, Immorality leads to fear and when you are immoral, you can't be blinded to the past and future. You have to somehow look at the past and look at the future and decide to give up being immoral. Because, you know, the way, though Swami doesn't write it uh, as such there, reading it, it becomes clear that Ahiravana is telling Ravana that immorality seems to be giving you rewards only in the present, the very immediate present. If you are able to look at the past or look at the future, you will realize that immorality has to go, you have to be moral. So you know, I was thinking just like as you said that determination which is a great quality becomes wrong when you are immoral. In the same way, another quality which we are often told that is live in the present, forget the past, forget the future. I think that also all the things that we are told to imbibe is is relevant only if we are moral. If you are leading a moral life, then yeah. Just live in the present morally, that's enough. You need not bother about anything else. But if you are immoral, I don't think you can live with the perspective that, I hey, just let's look at the present. Forget the past. No, you can't forget the past. Forget the future. No, you can't. Because immorality is going to lead to that, you know, and you are forgetting lessons of the past and what can happen in the future. So, all the good qualities that we are told to have, that is, determination, faith, Self-confidence, uh, living in the present—all these will apply, basing on the rider that we are moral. Just take this and apply it to a person who is immoral. All these, I think, are not virtues; they become vices. It's morality that makes an attitude into a virtue or a vice.
1: Exactly. You know, if you look at it, uh, you have Aghiravana who, who is uh, a demon himself. Coming and giving a discourse on immorality and he's saying that immorality will bring downfall. I think reading in between the lines, even among the demons, there was a sense of morality then. And, you know, even uh, uh, Rakshasa is telling that you strayed from morality and that's why you're going through this. Which means, even in the, uh, in the demons camp, there was a sense of morality which was there. Then what made them Rakshasas? That's what I was wondering, you know. Uh, if... The Rakshasas also had a sense of morality. What really made them Rakshasas? Hmm. Maybe that aggression, you know, that that was something which uh, made them stand apart. And maybe that desire to have, uh, to earn more, to conquer more and that was there. And that's why if you look at it, I think there are some of these qualities like probably desire or uh, the, prob- the idea of even uh, greed for power or any of these. I think all of these qualities can be sublimated at some point of time when you turn towards God or when you turn towards goodness. But immorality or the desire to hurt another person, as you know, as beautifully uh, it's said in the Bible, what is, what is the difference between goodness and badness? What is immorality? You try to do something to others which you don't want others to do to you. That's like the basic idea of goodness. If you do that, quality alone can never be sublimated. You know, the desire to inflict pain on the other person and to enjoy that—that is a quality which can never be sublimated. I think that is the immorality which, you know, which Ravana is getting into, and he's saying that I will take your wife. I will, you know, stray into this, and to defend it as by saying that you know you are wrong in coming and asking for your wife, (laughs) whom I have taken away from you, and that immorality is probably is what is being referred to here.
2: And so, in uh, Ahiravana advises Ravana thus, and uh, in, after advising him, however, he is his father's son. He promises Ravana that he will do all that he can to help him, and you know, help him win this war against uh, Rama. Ahiravana also knows that <laughs> this is a losing cause. One more interesting thing, you know, while reading this same Ram Katha Samayani this part it triggered in me about how Ahiravanam, you know, when he gets to know what uh, is the plight of Ravana, that Ravana is in his shrine, you know, in front of Shiva, in front of the Linga, and he is crying, he is weeping inconsolably, and, you know, this is this is a Ravana that Ahiravana has never imagined also, forget seeing. At that time, what are the thoughts of Ahiravana? I felt they are important because these are the thoughts that we also harbour in ourselves. Ahiravana is thinking, how can Ramana be so sad when he has everything in the world? This I say is important because we are also very often guilty of such thought. We think that when we have everything in the world, we have to be happy only, we can't be sad. And if at all we are sad, it is because we are lacking something in the world that we need. We wrongly assign the happiness to objects in the world. That is the reason why Ahiravana is puzzled. Swami writes there that Ahiravana is puzzled. Why is Ravana so sad? What has happened? You know. Later of course, yes, Ravana reveals to him what is the story so far and Ahiravana gives his discourse. But in the beginning, Ahiravana is also thinking like, which means he associates worldly glory and power to happiness. So Ravana is a ruler for all the three kingdoms. Yahiravana is ruling the Patala and Indrajit had defeated Indra. He was ruling the heavens. So, everything is under Ravana's control yet. Why is he happy? I think this is something that we too should definitely break because happiness never comes from the world.
1: In fact, even as you are saying this, I am reminded of, uh, we, I think last week sometime we posted uh, the interview with Mr. Jim Sinclair. Hmm. He speaks of that. We, We all know Jim Sinclair. When he came to Swami, he was, I think, the richest man in the world. The, in the 80s, when he came to Swami. You know, he, very, very successful businessman, and uh, of course, if he was the richest man in the world, you, you better be successful. And, uh, you know, flourishing business, he had a very good family and nothing to worry about. I mean, he had a complete uh, life in all senses. But he said for 30 years he had a pain in his heart, which was like, uh, as he would say, he would say that, you know, why was I born 2000 years after Jesus? left this earth and he said that was such an unfair thing to me Mm. and this was a pain which was so strong that you know it it lasted for 30 years and you can imagine that and finally uh, Swami appears to him in his room in uh, US and then he comes to know of Swami Then finally he makes his first trip to India and in that first interview you know what was the first question Swami asked him Mm. very interesting Swami asked him I gave you everything why are you still unhappy? Imagine that's the first question Swami asked him. I've given you everything. Hmm. In fact, I, uh, Swami must have had in his mind that I've given you more than I've given anybody else. Swami so said, I've given you everything why are you still unhappy? Because you know, when Swami said that he was so struck because he has never spoken about this unhappiness with anybody
0: else.
1: Hmm. It was the deepest feeling in him and Swami was talking about it. And it was also an acknowledgement to what he had come to understand that this unhappiness will not be removed by you know, how much of a success he gathers through his life. And Swami is acknowledging him, acknowledging that and, you know, and at the end of it he says, Swami asked him, will you do something for me? So now he was ready to offer his entire wealth at Swami's feet. Now that was the, the emotional point he was at. Mm. Because imagine if somebody could appear in your locked room, you would do anything for that <laughs> person, right? And speak of the uh, deepest uh, pain that is in your heart. So he said, Swami, anything for you. And Swami said, "Be happy for me." And it's that is what it is, you know. When uh, when you look at the entire stories like this, and when you all of these becomes data in your mind, all success cannot give you happiness. All wealth cannot be give you happiness. As as we are talking about this entire uh, you know period of the uh, the war, the kind of happiness which Swami describes of the vanaras. When I mean, it's unmatched. You're in the middle mm. of a war. You're in the middle of... Probably you're losing uh, your comrades all around you. But to have that happiness. Sami says, you know, these Vanaras look at that smile on Rama's face and everything is gone. All the fatigue, all the pain and all the
2: injury is gone. I, th- I think that that is uh, uh, emotion or that is a feeling that all of us can connect with. Because personally, I remember how many times, you know, it has happened that the day goes bad, you're feeling horrible, things don't go right... On different fronts, possibly on the health front, on the finance front. It has happened so many times. Of course, on many occasions, these things you write in a letter and present it to Swami. But I must confess that it has happened many times. That I have written the letter, I have held it. And as Swami comes close during Darshan, He looks and that beautiful, bewitching smile. Unforgettable it is. And when you see that smile, you know, Prem, you suddenly feel, Eh, what is this that I am giving? You know, what, what is this health problem You feel so small those things are. You feel so insignificant there. You know, the other time it might have felt like the end of the world for you because someone dear to you is sick. But at that point in time, he just looks and smiles and nothing else. It's nothing else. And it's not as if that he is even looking at you and smiling. It might just be a smile in your direction. And suddenly you feel what is... And I put the letter back in my pocket and just sit and I feel enjoy. means... So when, when, when we read in the Ramkatha that the Vanaras were just happy with Rama's smile, I don't think it is even a little bit of an exaggeration because we have personally experienced that in our lives. And if we can live with that, you know, live with that, that's why I think Swami would say, after darshan, find a corner and meditate on that because the blessings of darshan will get complete. You will, because with as, as with Shravanam you need Mananam and Nididhyasanam. I think even in the case of the Divine, Darshanam also needs Mananam and Nididhyasanam.
1: You are talking of uh, these Vanara's uh, experience of losing all fatigue I, remember the first Gramseva which we went out to hmm. and the first day the first day the Gramseva had started in this format you know, which we follow these days and we had not gone very far we had gone to Yedumanapalli village
2: Okay, the neighbouring <laughs> right?
1: one. Just the neighbouring one. You know, you cross the Ganesh circle and that's the village. And we'd gone there, and uh, we we I think there was some problem. We had started late, so we came back late. By the time we came back after the Gram Sabha, it was around four and thirty. it was in, the inagement. sheer
2: lack of experience. Right, lack
1: of experience. The logistics were wrong, and we had to cook again. And you know, we I remember on that day we went and served it right from the vessel. <laughs> <laughs> it was not even packed. You know, that's how we had got the numbers wrong or something like that. And we came back around 4.30. And at 4.30, imagine we were coming really exhausted because we never used to this kind of work, traveling in tractors and being in the sun the whole day. And we come back and as usual we enter the gate and all the boys were shouting Bolo Jay, uh, Jaykar to Swami's name and all that. And Swami was apparently inside the interview room giving interview to a family or uh, group which was there. And the moment Swami heard J.J. Karno because that was an odd group which came in after the mm-hmm. Dachshan had started, mm-hmm. Swami immediately got up from his chair. He said, hey, my boys have come. I have to go and see them.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sweet.
1: Okay, he said, all of you go, go, go. And, you know, pushed out that group from the interview room. And Swami came out and stood in the tip of that uh, portico. And Swami called one of the boys and said, the boys who came in the tractor, go and call them. Okay, so this uh, boy came running there. And he called this uh, boys who came from the tractor. And you can imagine all of them that... Suit was there on their whites, black in colour and mm. hands were all black, sweating like they've never sweat in <laughs> in the, all the years in the college, and they came running like that. And Swami was just talking to them and Swami gave them Padnamaskar, and then Swami said, You all are very tired, no? boys are shouting, No Swami, we're fine, we're very happy lad. So Swami said, Why don't you take a break tomorrow? You go day after tomorrow. He said, "No, Swami, we'll go tomorrow also." Mm. You know, Swami was so happy, and Swami said, "Okay, okay, Manchidi all of you go tomorrow also." You know, j- this is just the same thing. Probably when we were coming back, we'd have thought that how nice it would be if we get a break tomorrow. You know, uh, just a little bit of rest for our limbs. Mm. But just that Swami coming and saying, "Are you fine? Are you okay? Would you like to take a break tomorrow?" was enough. And I remember the same thing in that same first year of Gram Swami. One day came out, and we were supposed to go to Dharmaram to distribute, mm. and. Uh, I remember Swami is standing there and saying, you know, the people of Dharma has served me for 40 years. That's what Swami said. For 40 years, these people have been serving me and my devotees. So, as an act of gratitude, I want you all to go and give them my prasadam. Will you all be able to go?
2: Dharma Aram is a town, it's huge,
1: huge town. Because I remember we came back at 11.30 in the night.
2: That's how difficult
1: mm. it was. And all all the students were there serving but the way Swami said, you know, I want to show my gratitude to the people of udharmavaram Will you go and do this for me? I think that's what it is, you know, when you are able to do it for that smile on Swami's face. The energy which comes out of that is so much that we'll forget about the topic we're talking about and speak about anything else.
2: <laughs> In order to refocus back on the topic, right. I think we'll take a break here. Dear listeners, enjoy the song on the other side of the song. Both me and Prem will focus back and see where we, were, where we were when we took this detour and get back to the story of the ramkatha
1: Before we uh, go to that part where Ahir Ravana promises Ravana that you know he will, uh, you know even though he did not approve of Ravana's actions and what he has done, he says that I will do my bit of, uh, he says I will capture the two brothers Rama and Lakshmana and make a sacrifice of them to his goddess, that is Devi Kamada, that's what Swami says. But before this, you know, talking of there is that part where uh, the ministers come and try to boost Ravana. (laughs) Really, it's really funny how they try to do that because here is Ravana. He has lost his brother, he has lost his son in the battle, and he's really mourning their death. Uh, One, of course, because of attachment, and the other is the the fact that the best commanders in his camp have been killed. At that time, these people come and say, you know what? Attachments like this are meaningless. Sons and wives and children, <laughs> they keep coming and going. Their life is like very fleeting. It's so meaningless to brood over death
2: like this. Uh, using Advaita and spirituality. Right. <laughs>
1: you know, I, I found it really funny because, I mean, everybody knows the truth. I mean, that's the thing. You know, whether you're a Rakshara, Rakshasa or Ravana or, you know, the Vanaras or or uh, prince and princes, everybody knows the truth. But, you know, how... Badly or how wrongly we use the truth which we know to, you know, the, the mind, how it contorts truth to suit your situation. If you really are of that attitude that life is so fleeting and, you know, let's not brood over it, why will you even build a campaign of revenge on somebody's death or on somebody's, uh, you know... Getting insulted. insulted and injured. The whole idea is because, you know, Ravana says, even when he's talking to Ahir uh, Ravana, and that again I was thinking... You know when ahir Ravana comes and asks what happens, definitely Ravana would have given a one sided account of what happened. Mm. You know he would have spoken of ravana Rama being the one who has actually done the you know the, the offense the first offense of the way he's treated Surpanaka in spite of that Ra Ravana is able to read through it and say that you know it's all because of your immortal immorality mm. is, and the idea of I mean, here is the minister saying that, you know, life comes and goes, don't worry about it. Let's go and fight again. Let's build, you know, let's draw a strategy for the next leg of the battle. That's what they tell him. And, of course, the next leg of the battle, of course, is here Ahiravana saying that I will go and capture the brothers.
2: And so, Ahiravana decides that he is going to capture the brothers and uh, Vibhishna spies possibly get this info and they transmit it to Rama's camp. And Vibhishana knows the capabilities of Ahiravana so he warns everyone and he says that he is a master of disguise, he is a master of trickery, he may do anything. Uh, it We have to be on great guard tonight because added to the ability of Ahiravana, in general itself, the power of Rakshasa's increase at night. I think we already had that discussion where This possibly refers to the metaphor also where, wherein the evil forces are rampant in ignorance, in the darkness of ignorance, the bright light of wisdom demolishes all the vices and evil forces. And so that night, in order to protect Rama Lakshmana, the protectors of the whole universe, you know, as I say that statement, I was reminded how some of us got the opportunity to, you know, go every night. To Swami's residence, mm-hmm. uh, and the reason we were giving is we are do- we were given as we are doing security duty. Uh, it was so so evident that this is just an opportunity that Swami is giving us to be in his residence. Of course, during those few years when we were there, I never got to see Swami because we would go into the residence after Swami had retired in his room, and before he would come out of his room, we would have to vacate. But even then, just sharing the same building that. Uh, the Lord was in was a great opportunity and none of us had entertained even the slightest illusion that we are providing security to the Lord because he is the one who provides security to the universe. So I am sure it is with that same kind of attitude that Hanuman and others also realize that yeah they are to provide security to Rama and Lakshmana. So what Hanuman does is he grows his tail to a great extent and just like he had made a small conical pyramid in Ravana's presence, uh, here he makes a large conical pyramid, a cone actually, a cone he makes like a tent, encircling the entire camp, so many Padmas the army was, so it must have been really, really, really huge, huge fortress that (laughs) Hanuman made, possibly a fortress as large as Ravana's fortress itself, so with his tail and Hanuman says that, there will be only one entrance, and I will stand guard at that entrance, and so he's standing guard at that entrance and ahiravana looks at this and he is a little perplexed he is a little sad because he's wondering how will i get past hanuman because ahiravana has also heard of hanuman and his prowess so he's wondering how will he get past hanuman into this tail fortress that he has built
1: right, and one thing which happens before this is you know ahiravana even before he enters the camp he uh, he puts a spell of darkness where suddenly there is, you know, a pitch darkness everywhere in Rama's camp. And Swami says that even the monkeys are not even able to see their own palms. That's how dark it is. Hmm. A sudden spell of darkness. And that's when Hanuman actually does this thing of building a fort with his own temple. I'm sorry, with Uh, his tail. tail, Builds a fort with his tail and stands guard there. So at this point, Ahiravana is, as you said, he is so scared seeing this formidable fort which has been formed just then. But then he comes up with this plan where he takes the form of Vibhishana. He realizes that Vibhishana will definitely be one person who will be allowed to go into the camp at any time. So he comes in the form of Vibhishana and he, in, he cooks, cooks up this tale and uh, narrates it to uh, Hanuman saying that I was in the presence of Rama and I requested permission to go and have my uh, evening bath and perform my rituals and I told Rama that I will come back and report to him so I have to go and see Rama please permit me to go inside unless it would be uh, disrespectful not to go and report back to Lord Rama and that's how Hanuman allows Ahiravana who has come in the form of Vibhishana, to enter the camp to the presence of Rama and Lakshmana
2: At this point Prem you know I want to take this opportunity and express a thought it is a slightly painful thought but it is relevant here And I want to, you know, put it on record. Of late, you know, we have been hearing, I am sure you too have been hearing and we have received reports also of different devotees, different students of Swami also, whom the world holds in high esteem, often doing things that nobody expects them to do. And cheating people of their money, cheating people of their resources and doing all other things, you know. Exploiting the good name that Swami's name gives to either a devotee or the student for personal gain, for selfish motives and at the end of which, you know, the devotees are really shaken. I am saying this because personally, I have counseled a few devotees like this who have come and narrated how it has happened with certain... Uh, students and certain devotees, I actually felt that uh, an offender's list should be prepared, you know, for the organization so that known offenders at least can be kept out. But irrespective of that, you know, whenever such things happen, I always tell the victim that this only shows that you place your faith only in Swami. Swami is the only hero. Don't go behind monkeys because that's what example I give. I say, Rama is the only hero, all others are just monkeys. When a monkey sticks to Rama's path, it becomes Hanuman. So, there is nothing great of the monkey. I am sure Hanuman here will also agree that there is nothing great in the monkey. It is the love for Rama. And therefore, the hero is love for Rama and the hero is Rama that we must always seek. Why I brought it up at this point? is See, even here, None of the Rakshasas are able to penetrate and reach Rama and Lakshmana the way Ahiravana has been able to do. And how could Ahiravana do it? Because he put on the guise of Vibhishana. I just felt that when you are on God's side, you know, it is only your own people who can hurt you actually, you know. It is the people in whom there is trust. It is the people whom God has trusted. You know, when you trust somebody, it's almost like you give them the ability to hurt you, give them the ability to cheat you. It's always, it's, it's like that. When you love someone, you give them your heart, you have given them your happiness in their hand. Because you trust them that they will guard your happiness, you trust them that you will, they will guard your, you know, your uh, thoughts, your feelings, everything carefully. You trust them and that's why you hand it over. That's why, you know, you are most vulnerable to the people whom you love, the people whom you trust. And so that is what happens here also. And seeing this, when I was reading this example, this struck me because of, in recent times, so many such cases we are hearing of people being exploited in Swami's name and they later realize it when it's possibly too late. And, uh, Apparently some of the people who are swindling and doing such things are doing it in such a perfect manner that you can't even build up a legal case against them. So it's such things. So it's painful to hear, but this is just a thought to ponder upon that when you place your trust in anybody, you're giving them the ability to hurt you in any way possible. And that's why I'm reminded of that discourse in 2003 or 4, I think in Brindavan, Swami was, uh, giving the discourse. In the discourse he very clearly said love everyone but trust no one other than God. Because if you trust anybody else you are bound to get thrown down, you are bound to get hurt. Very clearly Swami made this statement. And I think that is something we should treasure because love all, serve all is good. But Swami never said trust all. I think we can add to that saying love all, serve all, trust only God.
1: It's a definitely not a very uh, pleasant thing to talk about but definitely it's something which we all have to think about Uh, in fact I was talking to uh, uh, Professor Sudhir Bhaskar who has come back from the United States he had been there for one of the retreats so one of the things he said was you know, there is a lot of confusion in the minds of people when they talk about what Swami wants and what Swami expects Hmm. and the very reason is all the while they have received the image of Swami through people It could be students of Swami. It could be uh, devotees of Swami. And it's not that all of them have had uh, some kind of uh, ulterior motive in mind. But all the while, the image of Swami that you're getting is the image which is carried by somebody who claims to be a student who is dear to Swami or somebody who claims to be a devotee who has spent many years in Swami's presence. Second hand. They are coming and giving an image of Swami and say that you know, this is what Swami says about seva, this is what Swami says about uh, how work should be done, this is what Swami says about how bhajans should be sung. But it's very sad that in this era when you can really go back to Swami's own voice and Swami's own, the Swami is expressing what He wants. When Swami says that I want the organization to be run this way. And Swami says, my organization, there will never be a situation where people come and say, come and give money, let's do this project. It will always be, the project will be done and those who wish to be a part of that will silently come and be a part of that. There will never be a situation where, you know, a group of people or an individual will come and say that, I want to do this project, come, all of you come and put money. The reason why people are falling for this is they don't know that this is not a trademark of Swami. And you don't know it because you're not listening to Swami directly. You're not reading,
2: not making efforts.
1: And it's there out in the open and, you know, that's very, very important. See, because uh, I think there is no better opportunity than this. You know, we all love Swami. The reason why people even get fooled is because, you know, you have love for Swami and that love is being misused. And when you have that love for Swami, why don't we direct it towards Swami's own words? What Swami has written, what Swami has spoken and, you know, that's, that's, that's uh, even more hurting sitting here at Radio Sai, when you know, you're doing all your efforts to bring Swami's voice as it is to people's uh, Exactly. You know, freely,
2: all the discourses, all the text, everything is available, made available free. Now, what do you do? As they say, you can only take a horse to the water, but drinking the horse has to decide to do it. I also personally felt that this is the only avatar that has allowed such things to be archived. You know, audio, video, text only because possibly he never saw a devotee who is fit enough to be a representative of himself. You know, possibly Rama could have seen that in Hanuman, knowing that Hanuman never this thing and therefore Rama did not feel a need to leave behind any, you know, text, audio, video. Hanuman and then Tulsidas, they have carried it through and we get the message. Possibly it is not there. So, Swami himself has taken the pain to leave behind all this. In fact, when Radio Sai When Swami came to inaugurate it, when we see the video, Swami clearly says, I have nothing to gain or lose from this. Where I feel in brackets the statement is, you have got everything to gain or lose from this. Gain or lose because if you decide to utilize it, you can gain. If you choose not to, then you are losing it out. Because Swami has nothing to gain or lose from it, but I feel it is Swami's immense love and compassion that 10 years before He decided to leave the physical or 12 years before He decided to leave the physical, He decided to set up an entity which would capture from, not only from Him directly, but from others who have captured it before. You know, because that's what I see is happening. When Radio Sai started, I remember one of the students who answered, Swami, Sai Prakash, when Swami asked, what is the work you will do? He said, Swami, we will listen to discourse, if there is any corrections we will make and put it And Swami said, what, you will correct my voice? (laughs) No, 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 Swami in the translation. Because that was what was envisaged as the role of Radio Sai, when it started, because Radio Sai was purely radio sai on radio that's all which meant his discourses so discourses with corrected translation will be aired and possibly we'll have an audio cassette repository here that's all was envi- uh, was what radio sai was thought to be by the first employees of radio sai today the same employees know what a what a huge vision swami had when <laughs> it, it started because even in that interview itself swami is saying what's on the internet, what's going on in Nilayam, what's happening there, everything will come together and he was speaking of convergence of technologies and which made absolutely no sense then and today we are so thrilled. So we must really, really be grateful and Swami we are definitely grateful to you for giving us this opportunity to con- connect with you directly, even in a physical realm, even after you have left the physical realm.
1: And, you know, one thing which all of us have to remember, be it we who are giving this message or people who are listening to it, you know, when you're talking about somebody who says that I'm a devotee of Swami or I'm a student of Swami, I'm a messenger of Swami, you're talking about the human mind which is carrying Swami's words, even if it is really carrying Swami's words. Mm -hmm. The human mind is so vulnerable, so vulnerable that many, many years spent in Swami's presence can leave it, Untransformed, many many years in Swami's presence, a mind which was docile suddenly uh, leaps to its original rajasic form, and all of this is possible in the human mind. And as devotees, when we are turning to Swami, we have to keep ourselves aware of our own mind too, not about just others' mind, our own mind, and keep more importantly that, our own mind, our own mind, and saying that you know this, w- what the mind which was when there was no power is so different from the mind which has power. The mind which was in a poor man's body is so different when the same mind is in a rich man's body. You know, when you become rich, when you acquire influence, when you acquire authority. All of this we should recognize, you know, the entire epic like Ramayana is all about that. The same Ravana who could do penance, who could sit in one place for years together, have his senses under control, have his mind under control and do penance, The same Ravana is doing all this right now. I mean, it's not a different Ravana. It's the same Ravana who is not able to control his senses. He is not able to control his temper. He is not able to discriminate. And it is just a sign of what can happen to a human mind.
2: In contrast, Swami gives the example of Rama, saying that Rama's face remained unchanged on the day of coronation, when one minute before he was going to become the emperor of the realm, one minute later, he's a nobody and he has to wear bar clothes and go to the forest.
1: It's precisely the same about Swami. You know, whenever we speak about the Satyam Shivam Sundaram, we, we spoke about that. There was a time when Swami had one robe on himself and one robe drying and that's all he had. And there was a time when Swami had to come out and distribute 700 robes <laughs> because people were giving him robes after robes. But the Swami never changed. And you know, that's precisely when we spoke to Mr. Nagraj. I think we mentioned this sometime back. he is a person whose family came to Swami in the 1940s and he himself had his first darshan probably in the 50s and when we asked him, sir, what is one striking thing about Swami you have seen Swami for so many decades and without thinking for a moment he said I saw Swami in the 50s, I am seeing Swami now Swami has not changed he said Puttaparthi has changed, Prashanthalim has changed the people around Swami has changed, the organisation has changed the ashram has changed, but Swami has not changed one bit I think that that is that is a state we all have to attain, as Swami would say. you know samadhi is actually nothing but the Dhi means the mind and the mind which is
2: always at the same state sama I don't know what others pray I'm definitely enjoying these digressions, but I guess we'll take a break again, and after this break we'll really refocus back onto the story, so right. dear listeners. That's a promise. We will go to Ahiravana and what happens there, we will be concluding that story. We will not leave you in suspense because this is the completion of the Ramayana fortnight. So, after the break, we will take up the story of Ahiravana.
3: Papi mohonnya monarin china. Sri Ramuni, kaman iya gadhanu, erigena gudu.
0: Agu babu, agu.
2: Ayah
3: nevatunda, Yeah.
1: listeners as we promised you we will continue with the story and uh, we are at that point where finally Ahiravana has taken the uh, form of Vibhishana, he has entered the camp and uh, as we said before he does that he puts a spell of darkness so nobody is able to see what he is doing and Swami says that he goes in front of Rama and Lakshmana and he uh, chants a mantra because of which they they uh, fall into a faint so, uh, mantra, the whole right? army the
2: Mohanam Mohana mantra
1: Mohanam yeah. mantra Swami says and after all of them fall into a faint he picks up Rama and Lakshmana and uh, I think just there within the tent he he digs a hole and he takes them to the uh, netherworld or the Patala where he the king of
2: uh, where he is the ruler of the realm exactly he takes him there and the next day you know when or whenever they wake out of their trance all the Vanara armies, they are all very depressed because they are seeing Rama and Lakshmana missing. I remember reading the story in the Amar Kata also. Mm-hmm. So, in that picture caption, they show that Hanuman has still kept that you know tail thing and he has walked in, you know, because possibly he has grown his tail by another 100 meters, you know. So, that he can walk in. <laughs> he walks in and he sees and in the middle there are two holes, you know, that is the route that Ahiravana has taken because all along the boundaries of this, the Vanaras would be sitting there, guarding Rama and Lakshmana and he has taken them and when there is chaos and dejection and depression in the camp, it is Vibhishna who rejuvenates everyone saying that, no, no I know the ways and this is what he is planning to do, so since the Rakshasar are nightly creatures till tonight at least nothing will happen to Rama and Lakshmana and again, you know, Swami makes it a point to write that Rama is aware of all this but he allows allows this to happen uh, again, uh, stamping it clear in our minds and hearts that don't think Rama was <laughs> caught by some Ahiravana like that. It is just his will. So, once the Vanaras are assured that till the next, till the night nothing is going to happen because even the sacrifice if he is planning to do will be done only at night, a little cheer comes in the camp and Hanuman then takes a solemn oath. He says that wherever they may be, whatever it is, I am going to go finish off this Ahiravana and get back Rama and Lakshmana. And I think listening. it's
1: uh, Vibhishana who suggests that it, uh, Hanuman should go because he tells that, you know, this is what will happen and he goes to the Patala and he says, I know the way to go there. One of our warriors must go and uh, bring back Rama and Lakshmana. He looks around, of course, who else than Hanuman is suitable for such the a proven world. track record. Right. <laughs> so he calls Hanuman and he says that, you know, you should be the one who goes. And of course, that's when Hanuman says that whatever happens by by night, by uh, dawn, I'm, I'll come back with Rama and Lakshmana.
2: And when he goes to the Patala, Swami writes that he overhears two birds. Patala <laughs> is underground, so I'm thinking possibly it, it's another world out there, you know. Like, so he hears two birds of prey discussing that tonight there's such and such a sacrifice that's going to happen and once that happens, we can feast on their bodies and all this that throws him in a kind of a rage and urgency to do things immediately. That is when, when he goes to this kingdom he sees that it's being guarded by another monkey called Makaradvaja. And because they're of the same species possibly, you know, Hanuman and Makaradvaja. Hanuman has a conversation with Makaradvaja because it so happens when you go to a say you go to another country And in that country, you meet somebody who speaks your mother tongue, there is a greater chance of you building a rapport because you have some shared commonality. Mm -hmm. So, this shared commonality of both being monkeys possibly makes them strike a conversation where Hanuman intelligently gathers all the details of the sacrifice that is going to happen from Makaradwaja.
1: Right, and uh, but in spite of this, you know, uh, Makaradwaja is not uh, inclined to allow. Anuman inside and in fact he says that well, probably he knows that what his master is doing is not right but he saying that my dharma is to stop anybody who comes here and my allegiance is to my master and so you will have to fight me before you enter the Patala and as Swami writes it Anuman does not do much without much ado he just extends his tail wraps this uh, makhra with his tail and just throws him as- throws him aside mm. and then the path is clear for Hanuman and Hanuman enters and then he sees that huge garlands are being taken into this place where uh, this Kamada Devi Kamada is being worshipped so now Hanuman takes a, a size I mean, you know, reduces himself to the size of probably a fly or something mm. and perches on this uh, flower which is part of the garland and enters that area where the uh, worship is going on
2: And uh, the garland is put on to the idol of the Devi and Hanuman therefore gets a vantage point from where he can see everything. Because uh, being on the Devi is like almost sitting in the Shanti Vedika for the sports meet. (laughs) That is the area from where you get a perfect perspective and view of everything that is happening. So first all different offerings are made and Swami writes that Hanuman swallows and drinks and consumes all the offerings. The Rakshasada are thrilled, thinking that the Devi is accepting their uh, offering. In the meantime, uh, the princess, that is Lakshmana and Rama, they are smiling. Rama and Lakshmana are smiling because they know that it is Hanuman who is consuming all these uh, offerings. And when Ahiravana sees Rama and Lakshmana smiling, he is enraged because he says, what are you smiling at? You know, your your uh, time of death has drawn near If there is any deity you wish to pray to or you want to make any last wish, you can because you don't have many more minutes to live. So, uh, saying so, he decides to lift a sword to possibly behead these two. That is when Hanuman in an instant jumps out screaming and shouting. All the Rakshasas are scared thinking, they are thinking possibly the Devi is speaking. But even before they can complete their thought, Hanuman is standing there in all his majesty, grandeur and glory with all his rage and he quickly rescues Rama and Lakshmana and begins a battle with Ahiravana.
1: Right and he uh, as as Swami describes he takes a sword from the statue of the uh, Devi Kamada and starts hacking this Ahiravana into many pieces and starts jumping on him and ensures that he is completely massacred but Ahiravana again is, has this magical power that how much ever he is cut up, he forms his uh, whole self again. So that is when Ravana uh, Hanuman catches hold of his neck, chops his head and throws the head into the havan which is built, the fire which is built for the sacrifice. And that's how Ahiravana has put an end to.
2: You know, another possibility this can be the thought to stop with. Ahiravana is killed and yes, Rama Lakshmana are rescued and they are brought back. Mm, we will uh, stop at this point in the story and here there is one more point to ponder that see a yagna or a havan is done with some goal in mind. So here you see the goal in mind was to destroy Rama and Lakshmana. When you do something which is for hurting others or, or uh, causing pain to others, it more often than not rebounds back to you. Inevitably, it comes back to you. There is a famous saying that the pit that you dig for others to fall into you yourself, fall into. And that is exactly what has happened to Ahiravana. Though his body can't be chopped and uh, because how much ever you chop it, it's going to join back. The fire that he built into which he wanted to sacrifice somebody else, he himself got sacrificed into the same fire. I think this is a point for us to ponder because that will ensure that all our motives what we do may hurt someone, what we do may actually injure someone, but I feel that is something that can't be helped because it's dependent on so many factors, but what can definitely be helped is our motive in our motives, our motives should never be to hurt someone or harm someone because whenever we have negative motives, the universe seems to throw it back at us and what we intend for others seems to happen to ourselves always.
1: And probably one thing which observation to make is, this is probably not the first time Ahiravana is doing a sacrifice. Mm. And again, it it comes back to that, you know, Swami would say that we can keep away from doing the wrong things with two ideas in mind. One is, as Swami would say, fear of sin. But fear of sin will go away when you you do wrong things and bad things don't happen to you immediately. When you get away with it. When Mm. you get away with it. That's when the fear of sin goes away. And the idea is... Eventually, we should refrain from doing wrong things, not out of the fear that it's going to come back and rebound at me. It should be done with the idea that I'm not supposed to do good or, as Swami would say, with the higher motive that, you know, Deva Devapreeti is the driving force for even abstaining from love sin. For God, love, love for God. Love for God is the reason for you to abstain from sin. In that case, it doesn't matter whether it's going to come back to you or not going to come back to you. It doesn't matter at all. I'm not supposed to do it because... I love Swami and Swami does not like such activities. And probably this is why sometimes reactions and reflections are delayed in their response. And probably that's again the thought to ponder about because whenever we talk about uh, the Ramayana where each of these Rakshasas are being decimated one after the other, they have had successful lives as tormenting beings. Hmm. So what is that which is stopping them right now? At some point, I think you will you will come face to face with the pure one and that's where none of this will you, you will certainly run out of luck when that happens
2: so with that dear listeners we bring to a close today's satsang on the Ramkatar Savahini. we express our gratitude to Hanuman for his inspiration and of course we offer our salutations at the lotus feet of our lord Sai Rama and are thankful to him for being everything to us in our lives. We pray that our love for Him keeps growing every moment and with that prayer we conclude with this bhajan on the other side of which you will be greeted in the segment Love to Love.